0: Welcome to Co-Conspirators at Work. I'm your host, Ella Bell-Smith, and this is Episode 1. First things first, let's get to know each other. Let's get right to the point. Here it is, the first and most important thing you need to know about me. I've spent my life in pursuit of a vision, and it's a vision I hope you share. The vision is of workplaces everywhere, that are diverse, inclusive, and equal. That's the dream. Just that simple. And I've been working on this for a while. I'm now 73 years old. I've seen a lot. That's a lot of years. I've seen some progress, but lately it's been brutal. It feels like one step forward and two steps back. Let's just agree on this. We have a long ways to go. There is work to be done, and I'm asking you to join me. That's right, listeners. I want you. Change doesn't just happen. It is brought about by people who are willing to do more than just talk and hope. What we need instead is action, a whole lot of action. We need leaders, we need change agents, we need people like you. I think of it this way, we need a choir of co-conspirators, and I'm recruiting. Let me say a little bit more to introduce myself. I am a New Yorker. I was raised in the Bronx. And for a while, I pursued the dream of performing on Broadway. It didn't quite work out. My life could have gone in any number of directions from there. Ah, fate. Thanks to a couple of lucky breaks and a ton of blessings, and of course my parents, I went to college and I just kept going until I had my PhD. I've worked at Yale and MIT and I've been at my current home, the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, for nearly a quarter of a century now. Tuck has been good for me. I am particularly grateful for the Tuck family as I dealt with my husband Clay's leukemia. He passed in 2020 and Tuck was right there, my Tuck family supporting us, supporting me through his transition. Now we have the Initiative for Workplace Inclusion. It funds this podcast and several related projects. So my field here in academia is organizational behavior. And my research is focused on the experiences of both African-American women and white women in the workplace. Now I'll certainly bring my expertise to our conversation when it makes sense to do so. And I will invite guests who can bring their expertise. But let me be clear. This podcast is not about me, and it won't be about the guest. It will always be about work that needs to be done. So let's talk about the work that needs to be done. These days, I'm afraid that a lot of what is written and said about diversity, equity, and inclusion. D-E-I, falls short of the mark. A lot is being said about something called allyship. What's an ally? It's an advocate. It's a friend who takes action to help a colleague. The thinking goes like this. If every person from a marginalized group in an organization has a committed ally, someone who guards, protects, and advances the person's workplace experience, then we will make progress. We will create a better workplace. Now let me be clear, I would like allies. It's great to be an ally, it's great to have an ally. But it's also very clear that allyship is a long, long way from being a complete solution. And it's not just clear to me, the research is in, and the numbers support the point. Here's the thing, being an ally is a bit too easy. A lot of allies do their part when it's convenient, and then they opt out when it's difficult. Co-conspirators are more than allies. They don't think about helping a friend. They think about advancing a cause. They have bigger hopes. They take bigger actions. They're down in the trenches with you. And what we need? Mm, a full choir of co conspirators. Guess what? I'm recruiting. So let's get to it. Co conspirators. It's a word that lifts my heart. Conspirators, because we don't yet have. Enough top down leadership or enough widespread cultural support to get done what needs to be done. And that means that a lot of work falls on individual leaders at all levels. People like you, people who take initiative, people who are conspirators. (laughs) Ha ha! But I said co conspirators. That's because in this choir that I'm assembling, in this choir of co-conspirators, in the community that we are building around this podcast, well, (laughs) we're all in it together. And folks, we're going to work hard. I'm going to ask a lot of you. We're going to ask a lot of each other. Okay, now, let's get into the meat of our first episode. Let's get to work. We are going to launch this podcast in a place that just might surprise you. We're going to start with history. Folks, listen, if you want to be a co-conspirator, you need to know some history. Specifically, you have to know something about the history of diverse populations Let me tell you something. It's nearly certain that you don't know enough. Very few of us know enough. And yes, I'm including myself. I don't know enough. I'm a well-educated African-American woman, and I don't know enough about African-American history. So there's no shame here. We are all in this together. And look, it's hard to know enough. It's hard because much of the history that you need to know has not been written yet. And I'm sure you can imagine why that is. And so we start with history. History, because we live history every day and because you cannot lead to tomorrow if you're naive about yesterday. And so we start with history, and I am just so excited to be able to share a conversation I had with Matt Delmont. Matt is a distinguished historian at Dartmouth, an expert on African American history, and an expert on the history of civil rights. He is the author of five excellent books. I am just in awe of his work, and he seemed excited to be my guest for episode number one.
1: I couldn't be happier to be in conversation with you. Congratulations on the new podcast. And uh, I don't think I've ever been the first podcast guest for anything.
0: Matt and I talked about his most recent book. It's one that you just must read. It's called Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. There's a quote in the book from the writer James Baldwin, one of my favorites. Here it is. The great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us and are unconsciously controlled by it. History is literally present in all we do. I got to tell you, that quote spoke to me, so I asked Matt about it.
1: I think that quote from Baldwin is such a great one because it it talks about the the embodied nature of history. That's why we we care so much about it. These aren't just random abstract stories that we encounter in textbooks. These are things that our grandparents lived through, our parents lived through, that we're living through right now. That's why these things matter so deeply. It literally shapes the kind of opportunities people have or do not have. Whatever our professional outlooks might be, whatever our political commitments might be, history informs how we make sense of everything we see in front of us right now and then everything we might choose to pursue in the future.
0: Isn't that interesting? The embodied nature of history. Yes, I feel that. And it's humbling. We carry history literally within our bodies. Maybe it's something we all feel more deeply as we gain wisdom. The extent to which we are all, every one of us, products of our pasts. And listeners, there's so much more in this book, I have to tell you. I read it with intense interest from beginning to end. It's just so evident that Matt Delmont put his heart and soul in this book.
1: So I asked him about what inspired him. I wrote the book because there wasn't really a a good book that talked about the the broad perspective of what World War II looked like for black Americans. We have good books on the Tuskegee Airmen, good books on specific... Um, people who fought in World War II, and some good books on the civil rights battles on the home front. But there wasn't one book that brought all those different perspectives together, both the, uh, the military contributions, but also the home front contributions.
0: Now, listeners, let's slow down for a second here and think, because what Matt said there is really important. I mean, we're talking about World War II, probably the most chronicled era in American history. And yet, there's not much written about African-Americans. We have selected stories, but no big-picture perspectives. One of the great things about the book is the richness of the primary source materials. One of those sources was the Amsterdam News. And, oh, that brought back memories. My parents always had that paper in the house when I grew up.
1: Well, these black newspapers were really the the lifeblood of black communities, uh, particularly in the, the mid-20th century. This was the golden age for black newspapers. So the New York Amsterdam News that you mentioned, the Chicago Defender, Pittsburgh Courier. I'm from Minneapolis. It was the Minneapolis Spokesman was the, the mm-hmm. largest paper there. They covered every facet of black life. They took, covered civil rights protests. They covered violence. but They also covered weddings and, and births and sporting events and the dances and movies. It was the full range of the black experience. And what's so important about those as sources for historians is that they tell you an entirely different story than what you're gonna get from the mainstream press.
0: It's so true. These newspapers were essential in telling African-American
1: truth. If you looked at the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, any quote-unquote mainstream white newspaper, you'd have hardly any idea that there were a million black Americans fighting in World War II. There was scant, scant coverage (laughs) of black Americans and their, their vast contributions to the war effort. So as a historian, if you focused only on those white newspapers, you could very easily tell a story that, you know, black people didn't do much during World War II. Mm -hmm. If you look instead at the black newspapers, it comes through really clearly that black Americans are in every theater of the war. They're doing work that helps American the allies win the war, that really American the allies couldn't have won the war without these these black troops.
0: And listeners, you may not be aware of this, but the newspapers we are talking about These were not little community papers. They were large operations
1: with real resources. And one of the things I didn't know until I got into the research was these black newspapers had war correspondents that were embedded with black units. Someone like Langston Hughes, um, the famous poet and writer, he actually, even before World War II starts, he follows a group of 80 black volunteers who volunteered to go fight in the Spanish Civil War. He's there because he wants to understand what does it mean for these average black folks from New York and Alabama to travel to Spain, a country they've never been to before, to start fighting against fascism in 1937, 1938. But his reporting gives you a very visceral, clear sense of what black people were doing in these international conflicts.
0: Langston Hughes, the famous poet, embedded with African-American troops in the Spanish Civil War... <laughs> I simply had no idea. And not only that, Matt Delmont, professional historian, had no idea before starting this project. It shows just how much we can all keep learning. Matt and I also spent time talking about the current political environment and how it pains both of us. We all have so much more to learn, but there are many who are fighting to make sure we don't teach it. There are those who don't want our children learning about history because it might make them sad or uncomfortable.
1: It's a scary time to be a historian, to have people in elected office, people running for office, openly campaigning on the fact that they shouldn't teach the kind of things that, that I teach about in my classroom. They're they're scared to talk about African-American history, you scared to talk about the history of slavery and the history of segregation, the history of racism in our country. Right. There's many, many amazing, wonderful things about American history. There's also some very troubling things. And if you're a grown-up uh, or aspiring to be a grown-up, you have to be able to talk about both those things together to, right. to reckon with the actual history.
0: <clears throat> a grown-up or someone aspiring to be a grown-up? Isn't that a great way to put it? Being a grown-up means taking in the bad with the good, And frankly, if you want to be a co-conspirator, you have to hold yourself to an even higher standard.
1: History isn't just meant to make us feel good, right? It it can make us feel good in some cases, but we're meant to be able to learn from the past. And the stories we choose to tell about the past matter. We wouldn't be fighting over these these things if they didn't. But we have to be able to tell accurate, evidence-based stories about the past, and then hopefully use those stories to help inform how we understand the present and how we might chart different pathways to the future.
0: Yes, that's exactly it. Whether you're talking about schools, communities, countries, companies, or giant corporations, charting a different path to the future, or in a word, leading, demands a clear eyed view of the past. Matt and I also dug into the core of his book, The War. And we spoke about the concept of a double victory.
1: So during World War II, the rallying cry for black Americans was double victory. The double victory campaign was about victory over fascism abroad. So defeating Hitler, defeating Japan, winning the war militarily. And then victory over racism at home. It was a two-front war, as they understood it. It was the military battle, but then also victory over racism at home. It was framed that way because black Americans recognized that racism and white supremacy wasn't just An international phenomenon. It wasn't going to do enough to defeat Nazism abroad if they couldn't also defeat white supremacy at home.
0: It seems to me that the double victory campaign is just a very basic piece of historical knowledge. It strikes me like this. If you know anything about the war, then you've heard about Pearl Harbor. And if you know anything at all about the African-American experience in the war, you've heard of the Double Victory Campaign. And yet, I bet a lot of you are hearing about the Double Victory Campaign for the first time. Much like many people in this country had never heard of Juneteenth until just a few years ago.
1: I asked Matt about the origin of the campaign. The Double Victory Campaign is launched by the Pittsburgh Courier, and they actually... Um, take up that rallying cry after they receive a letter from a man named James Thompson, who was a 26-year-old from Wichita, Kansas. And he writes this letter in December of 1941, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, because he knows that he and other black Americans are about to be drafted into a segregated military. And he writes this searching, very deep letter. Uh, He says, should I sacrifice my life to live half American? Is the America I know worth defending? When I read that letter, it it stuck with me. It's why I chose half American as the, the title of the book.
0: There are so many vivid stories in the book, and part of what they illustrate is that the experiences of African Americans varied widely from one unit to another.
1: Black units in World War II had one of two types of of white leaders. Uh, Too many of these black units had racist white leaders who didn't really respect the men that were under their command, and the the black soldiers knew that. They knew that these guys were only assigned to lead these black units because there was a sense that as white Southerners, that they knew how to control uh, the quote-unquote colored troops, or colored populations. That wasn't a good feeling for, for black troops to know that there were leaders who didn't respect them. And it led to lower morale uh, in, in the units and overall less effective performance than they could have been. In contrast, there were black units that had white leaders who really respected their men. There's a unit like called the um, 761st. Black Panther tank battalion mm. that fought for 160 days consecutively across four major battles including the Battle of the Bulge. They had a, a white commander named Paul Bates who deeply respected his men and the men knew that and they fought all the harder because of it. And so I think that's just one example of when you think about leadership today, workplace morale matters because people understand whether their managers, whether their leaders actually want to see them succeed or whether they're just there for the next promotion.
0: Okay, listeners, I know you're wondering about how this all applies to the modern workplace. As it turns out, Matt had quite a bit to say about that.
1: The military, for all intents and purposes, could have been desegregated well before World War II. There was no strategic or tactical reason to have a segregated military fight World War II. It was costly and and made the military a less effective fighting force.
0: It was interesting for me to hear Matt talk about how the military fell short of full potential during the war. After all, it wasn't too long after the war that the military became a model for other organizations to follow.
1: The military finally starts to desegregate with President Truman's executive order in 1948. By the end of the Korean War in 1953, the military is fully integrated. That puts the military on a more forward-looking perspective with regards to racial equality than higher education, more forward-looking than most corporations. it took courage and leadership for those mid-level commanders, for the for the generals, to actually implement those policies because a lot of America wasn't there yet. A lot of their own white men under their command weren't there yet, but they recognize the military is going to be more effective if it can put racism behind it and try to move move forward. The context is different today in a lot of corporations, but the the lesson I think is still the same. If you were to tell someone in 1941 that by 1948, the military was going to start desegregating, they would have said, you're crazy.
0: It's not just that they started desegregating. They got the job done and quickly. Seems to me that ought to inspire
1: a lot of leaders today. If the military could pull that off in less than a decade, a lot of the issues related to diversity and inclusion that average corporations face today are not nearly as insurmountable as as that was. It just took political will and and leadership to actually get there.
0: Less than a decade, and way ahead, the rest of the country. And while part of the motivation may have been a desire for racial justice, the bigger motivation was to build the best fighting force possible. It was about performance.
1: It's too easy sometimes to think about diversity and inclusivity efforts as a a feel-good project. Right. It's not what it is. It's about talent acquisition and, and talent um, putting together teams that will be more effective than the teams you might have had previously. Right. Right. I think that's a, a really clear lesson from, from World War II that the military, and I think that's still true today, has has thought longer and harder a lot about, about a lot of these things because they they need to take advantage of uh, a range of different capacities that people can bring. In the workplace, the same thing is true. If you want to put together the best, most dynamic, most creatively thinking team, you need to be thinking differently about how you compose that team, where you're recruiting from, how you're retaining talent, how you're putting people in, uh, together to collaborate.
0: We've been talking about the way the military was able to desegregate so successfully after the war. But you know, the work of desegregation wasn't just the work of one or two leaders at the top. It took leadership at all levels to get the job done. That's also evident if you look at the civil rights battles on the home front. I asked Matt to talk about a leader who has always been inspiring to me, Ella Baker, my namesake.
1: Ella Baker is obviously one of the, the people who's in this book. This such an amazing, amazing figure. I and mean, for, yep. for listeners who aren't familiar, Ella Baker is really the, the most important grassroots activist of the civil rights era.
0: That's my lady. I asked Matt to talk about Ella Baker's
1: impact on the NAACP. The NAACP was the largest civil rights organization of the era, but they were really focused on professional class Black Americans. Their, their primary base initially in the start of the war was doctors, lawyers, other professionals. Ella Baker's key breakthrough was understanding you didn't need to be a professional class black person to be a leader, and so she's going to these small towns and communities across the South, the Mid Atlantic, the Midwest, and organizing local people, average folks, sharecroppers, um, um, barbers, uh, house cleaners, everyday folks, mm-hmm. to to become leaders and to organize for for what what they um, care about in their communities. Even more importantly, she's holding leadership training workshops across the South. That I think that. There's so much leadership training that happens today, which is is very important, but this is something that- In the community. In the community. This is something that, that she helped to pioneer. Right? That it's not just that you're born with leadership uh, abilities or not. She re- recognized that you could train community-level people to be, to be leaders. And I think most famously, Rosa Parks attends one of these community yep, leader yep, workshops yep. in 1945.
0: It's so important,
1: as Ella Baker understood, to
0: realize you need leadership at all
1: levels one of her quotes was about the importance of having leader-full movements, that it's not enough to have one iconic leader, one figurehead. Um, As powerful as Martin Luther King was, he wasn't the entirety of the civil rights movement. That took people who understood themselves as leaders. I think the lesson for people today, and that's true in the academy, it's true in, in corporations, is you need to empower people throughout an organization to have those leadership capabilities to actually move on whatever initiatives you're trying to move forward. If it's just the CEO or the president saying something, it's not going to happen. Like, you need people throughout the organization to believe in it, but also to have the, the skill and ability to, to motivate and to, to lead their own teams.
0: Well, listeners, obviously I agree. In fact, it's the premise of this entire podcast. To create change, you have to build a small army of cold conspirators. At the end of my conversation with Matt, I thought about how much time he spends studying the darkness in our history. And of course, a lot of that darkness is still with us today. I asked him a simple question. I asked, Matt, do you have hope?
1: So I I do have hope. And I I think and I believe that hope is earned. Uh, So hope isn't just a uh, a blind optimism that, you know, I, I hope things are going to get better. But based on the kind of research I do, the advances our country has been able to make with regards to civil rights, with regards to racial equity, came because people dedicated themselves, risked their lives, in some cases gave their lives, to make those changes possible. I think that was that was an earned hope. So for me, when I think of, of hope, I think it's if we're committed to making our institutions different and better if we're committed to making our communities different and better, committed to making our country different and better, there's hope that can be taken from that.
0: Earned hope that's going to stick with me. Earned hope. And listeners, co-conspirators, let's get out there, get to work, make some change, and earn some hope. And let's remember, above all else, that if you aspire to lead, You have to understand the people you are leading, and that means knowing their history. So read your history, read it widely, read it with curiosity, and read it to deepen your ability to connect with and to lead everyone in your workplace. We'll be back again soon for another episode of Co-Conspirators at Work. Thanks for listening. Bye.
1: This podcast has been brought to you by Ella Bell Smith and the Institute for Workplace Inclusion at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. Concept development and editing by Ashley Zwick. Script development, audio production, and music composition by Chris Trimble and Treehouse Audio Productions.